This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right, guys, it is a Sunday where I am morning uh, snowing here in Maryland, so that's pretty fun. And I have the pleasure of speaking with Rahard Yartz. Um, he is a growth tech style investor and I followed him on Twitter for a long time, loved his writing. He's got a really cool sub stack, which we'll talk about. And the purpose of this podcast is to dive into one of his higher conviction ideas. Pinterest ticker is P-I-N-S. And Yahard got into Pinterest at around $20 a share. So for anyone that knows the stock price today, which I don't, I should have it in front of me, he has made a pretty handsome return so far. And the purpose of this podcast is really to see what his thoughts were going into Pinterest, why he uh, liked the business, what he didn't like about the business, and how he was thinking about the thesis playing out over the next three, five, and 10 years. Um, and I really am looking forward to this conversation. I know you guys are going to get a lot out of it too. So Rahard, thanks for, th- thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Brandon, for inviting me. It's a pleasure yes. to be on. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those accounts again, like I said, I've been following you for a while and um, I was like, you know what, it'd be so cool to pick his brain about, about something tech related. And then you dumped a Pinterest deep dive and I was like, ah, this is perfect. Um, so before we dive into Pinterest though, walk me through, you know, who you are and how you got started investing. I know you've got a tech background, you've started a couple companies, but um, you know, kind of give me the rundown on, on what got you into tech and what got you into investing in public markets. Sure. Um, so basically, I started with investing uh, at an early age. I was really eager to learn about investing. Um, I started, let's say, uh, when I was at college and joined. Uh, it's it's like a student stock exchange club where we had this uh, virtual simulation of stock investing um, and stuff like that. And basically, after my business degree. I went to work in audit in one of the big four companies. There I, I got the knowledge on how to read financial statements, value companies, what to look for in, 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 uh, in these statements. And um, this is where I learned a lot. Um, and then also um, after a while I, I moved uh, and uh, got a job as an equity analyst at one of the banks. And uh, I basically focused mostly on tech companies um, and, and of course equities. And uh, later on, I was promoted to portfolio manager and where I managed funds for high net individuals. Um, I did this for a couple of years. Uh, I was always more focused in this tech software names uh, because uh, I mean technology and software is uh, let's say a passion of mine and and, and a field where I'm very eager uh, to learn and and see new things and then basically when I saw that this um, let's say uh, big corporation world is not for me 
I uh, went to pursue my entrepreneurial path and basically started uh, a startup. Um, and then later on, another one, uh, which I'm still CEO and co-founder. Um, and yeah, I also um, joined Twitter uh, and, and started writing about my thoughts regarding uh, stocks and, and my investments. And now I also run an investment newsletter, which many people follow. So um, yeah, th that's in a nutshell, I guess. Talk to us about those two companies that you started, both in the software and tech space. With the first one, what problem were you trying to solve and how did this idea come up for this first company? Sure. So the first company is basically a, a, um, a rating agency for used cars. So uh, the, the, the problem that we were solving is that on the used car market, there is a lack of um, transparency. So um, most buyers don't know what they're buying and the sellers, even if they have a, a car in, in a good condition, nobody believes them. Um, so so with this company, what it does is it runs a technical check of, uh, of a car and uh, basically all this input goes into an algorithm, which then defines uh, or rates the, the, the state of the car. And with this rating, you can basically, as a buyer, you, you say you can, you can check and see that the car is in a well condition or if something is wrong, what, what is wrong, etc. Um, and yeah, um, the idea for, for this company came because uh, I had, like when I was 18, I, I bought my first car and um, like, I didn't really use it that much. So it had low mileage, et cetera. And then because it was so small and it, it was like red with a white uh, stripe going all over the car. Mm -hmm. I was like, um, I need to get something else. I'm older now. And um, then I had a problem where nobody believed that this car is like uh, in good condition because it had low mileage. Everybody was saying, this can't be true because I don't know, it was five, 10, seven years old or whatever. And it had, it had low mileage. Right. So, right. um, and then I thought, why isn't there somebody like a third party that can say, and you can basically drive your car there and, and, and get it checked and say if the car is good or not. Um, so yeah, this, this is how, um, the first company, um, basically started and what it is, is solving. Did you ever run into issues where almost like a chicken and the egg problem where this third party rating system is good if other people think that that's a reputable source? And in other words, it's like the more people you have on this platform and using this third-party rating system, the better that ratings become, kind of like a Moody's or an S&P for bonds. How did you manage to overcome that initial hurdle where it's like you need users to use this platform to make it more trustworthy, but there's not an incentive for users to use it at the beginning because there's no users to make it trustworthy, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, so the, the main problem was, it was similar to this one, let's say, um, we, we started with an idea that let's approach the sellers of the car and say to them, 
look, get your car rated. You're going to sell it faster. It's going to be more exposed, etc. And everybody was just saying, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. But the main problem was that because nobody was really using it or, or, or small number of sellers were using it, nobody was willing to take that risk and say, what if my car gets an B and not an A or, or something yeah, like that, right? exactly. And, and then we basically um, tried to figure out this problem. Uh, and, and to some extent we did, but then we also had the focus on turning this to the buyers so that they are the ones that demand um, that they want um, the, the car to be checked, right? Right. Um, so, so this was maybe a shift in, in, in how we approached. So more focused then on the buyers and making them push the sellers um, to this. Because, you know, we, we, we did like research and we found out that 90% of like car buyers were willing to pay like 3% more for a car if they had like um, the check and, and they see what was good and, or what was not. Um, but even, even with this information, the sellers weren't willing to say, I want to rate all my cars, right? They also, because it's like, I guess it, it, it is a problem on the market. Yeah. They were like willing to, to rate small numbers of cars. So um, this, this, this was a problem. Yeah. But and it's almost like then the focus. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like one of the bull case or one of the bear cases, I'm sorry, of Yelp. And I don't know if you ever looked at Yelp as an investment or not was the disincentive for business owners to list on Yelp because what if they get bad reviews? And it's like, well, why would I voluntarily yeah. list on Yelp if people are going to say my restaurant sucks? And you know, I can I can kind of see the similar things happening with your business. So you you said right there before I before I cut you off that you kind of shifted. So how do, how did you shift and what did that look like? Yeah, so the shift was the one that I was explaining. So more focusing on the buyers and maybe even willing to. To, to let the buyer um, pay for, for the service, right? And, and yeah. at first, then we saw that we can't run this um, price in, in a way that we would make like good profit because um, we had to get, get traction and get as much ratings out there as possible. And that's why we also like lowered the price and, and stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, this this maybe was how how we had to approach things differently than what we initially thought would work, hmm. um, because the sellers, you know, the sellers are gonna like I still believe the sellers are gonna come at some point, but they really need this um, the number of ratings to be very high so that they they lose clients because the clients say oh but two of your competitors have the cars rated right so. Um, that is the point where you can shift this into um, to to the seller side, right? So um, yeah, I mean it's such a it's such a powerful business once you get scale. I mean, just look at you know Moody's S and P the switching costs and just you know the fact that you can build something like that that has such brand recognition and such powerful trust amongst its agents, where even if you create something else at a cheaper price, or maybe you have a better ranking algorithm, it still doesn't matter. Um, you know, almost, almost kind of like what Carfax, you know, Carfax is pretty much yeah. something that's like, oh, well, if you get the Carfax done, it's like, oh, that's now a verb where they created something like that to develop trustworthiness within their customers. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, the, the problem is also with Carfax, it's easier because it's like, okay, so this is the history and you, you state the facts, right? But in, in, in this car checkup, you can make like a really detailed analysis of a car and it will be really expensive because it will take hours or yeah. you could focus on main things that could be a problem. But then you also have to prioritize, okay, safety is first, but then also like some things cost more if they, if they don't work anymore and you have to uh, change them, right? So it's really a problem of how, uh, how strict you want to be since uh, at first, of course, when you, when you target the, the, the sellers, right? Because they don't want this to be too strict because then they will say people don't understand why it's not A or, and, and it's B like, right? So, because B could still be very good, but yeah, because there's no scale. This is really a, a, a problem to have when you're, when you're small. So, yeah. Yeah. No, this, this, this interesting idea of this two-sided marketplace and how you built this two-sided marketplace and where, where to focus, whether on the demand side or the supply side in it and at what time is, is interesting. And we're, and we're going to touch on that later as it comes to your philosophy of investing in public markets. But I do want to touch on the second business that you started and the sure. one that you're still, you know, co-founder and, and, and CEO of. So what is, what is that business? What, what problems does it solve and why did you decide to start it? Sure. So the second business is uh, basically a data extraction uh, software. So we are an API provider. Um, so to put it simply, uh, we extract data from documents. So our clients like take a picture of a document or scan a document, send it through our API, and we return the, the data indexed and extracted. So it's, it's called typeless. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's basically pure, pure software, um, uh, like company, our targets and customers are developers. So it's basically a dev tech, um, company. Um, so yeah, we, we first started with a simple document like invoice extraction, and now we expanded into a full platform where the users, the developers come on register basically um, put any document in the, in, in, into, into our API and they basically decide which fields they want to extract and it's personalized to, to their uh, experience. So it's AI that is, that is um, not general AI, but it's dedicated AI engine. So what, so, yeah. what, what specific problems are you, are you solving with this? I mean, the first mm -hmm. application I can think of, and maybe, maybe I'm off on this, but feeding a bunch of court case legal documents into this into the software and then indexing certain yeah. you know crimes or certain trials and trying to derive insights is that what this software does or am i am i yeah exactly but for example our most used case is where like accountants don't have to manually write data from invoices for bookkeeping and even businesses at the end for example, don't have to write the data manually to, to pay bills or invoices. So our clients are like mostly um, like big corporations that have their own, like some kind of big use case that they want to optimize. Or the other one is the, that the clients are uh, software providers like accounting software or, or some other software provider like SAP or, or, or um, 
QuickBooks, etc. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, so this kind of companies then that and they then offer this solution solution as a white label back to their clients. So, um, yeah, th- these are our main two clients. What are what are some of the biggest challenges with this current startup in the sense of? You know, I mean, I know you've got problems that you're trying to solve, but in your in your day to day, you know, what 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 kind of hurdles are you trying to solve? What problems do you want to see yeah. uh, fixed over over the next year with this startup? So the main problem that that uh, I guess it's a problem or it's a it's a challenge is for you to go from like an invoice software uh, provider, software extension provider, to a platform. Because, you know, it's, it's similar to Twilio uh, where, uh, where you need to incentivize people and bring ideas on what they can build, right? Because yeah. if you just say, we are a platform, you can come put any document, that, that sounds great, but nobody will, will do it because nobody is really searching for what can I do now? Oh, I, I can do this, right? Everybody wants a fitted use case. So yeah. right now we are in, 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 in building out this multiple use cases so that people see, oh, okay, here is for this kind of legal documents. And this is for, let's say, invoices. And this is for other types of I don't know, logistic documents, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So um, you have to, um, at least at the start, you have to show people what can be done with, with, with a platform in order for them to come and then bring their own use cases. Got it. So this, let's say, is, is the main focus right now. Got it. Now, pivoting from your time as a startup and founder, there's myriad lessons I'm sure that you've learned from that that you can take to investing in public markets and investing in these earlier stage growth tech companies. And before we kind of dive deeper, I'm, I'm making an assumption that you mainly invest in technology companies. Is that, is that true? Yeah, mainly so, yeah. Okay, got it. So when you're looking at these tech companies, what are some of the qualities you're looking for in a fantastic technology business that might not be what everyone already assumes, like you know, recurring revenue, high margin? Obviously, those are, those are good things that any business would like. But do you think because of your background, there's things that you might look for that others would miss? Sure, yeah. So what I like from having this domain knowledge of running software companies is that, you know, when I started with investing, I was probably like most people focused on value investing. I read all the value investing books um, and, and was really focused on this numbers on, on financial data. I, I don't, don't, don't give me wrong. I still look at the financials and analyze, etc. But I also have like, from knowing this domain knowledge that even if I look at my company right now, if you just look at the raw numbers, you won't get any picture of what, like, um, what are the potentials, potentials of our company or, or what can be done. Uh, so it's, it's a, in a way, if a company is growing really fast, it's too hindsight, you know, it's, it's too uh, backward looking. So um, what I learned most was, I'm still learning, is what to look for when a company is growing. So what are these soft indications? 
And, and mostly, I, I like to think when I invest in a company, okay, this is what they're selling right now, mm-hmm. but what else could they be selling? So, hmm. um, for example, one of my main, let's say, metrics that I like in, while investing in, in, in tech companies is a big, big user base. I found out that user bases are normally, uh, like investors miss it or they just look at revenues that companies are doing right now from, from the products they're selling, right? But I, I, I saw that if you have a big user base, it's much easier to upsell another product than it would be for you to start a new business and have to acquire these clients on the market. So um, I really like big user bases, high margin businesses, of course, like most people, but also um, in the product, you have to see what can be done with the product, what else, what else can they sell, and also that it is monetizable. So this is important. The company doesn't need to monetize it right away, but you have to see the end goal on how they can make money from it. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's 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 interesting. I kind of want to springboard off of the idea of a large user base being able to cross sell other things. It sounds a lot like um, what Dennis Hong of I think it's Shaw Spring Partners, what Dennis Hong calls. Uh, optionality and you know these different levels of optionality and it seems like what you're what you're saying and and you know for you know let me know if I'm putting words in your mouth but if you have a large user base by default it gives you a better chance of having successes with optionality whether it's new products or new services so for instance Amazon they've got a huge base of Amazon Prime members it they can they can test and they can and they can do things more you know, op- optionality wise. And if they do have a success, that success is spread over a large customer base where if you've got a small company that's trying to do a bunch of optionality things, even if they get it right, it might not move the needle. Is that is that kind of what you're saying here? Exactly. And maybe I can provide an example from yeah. my startup even. Yeah. We, when, we, when we started for this data extraction, we had an end client solution. So it wasn't just an API. We started with an application where basically an accounting firm or a company could use our app and then it was connected to their accounting software, right? Um, but as we we got clients, we got traction, but we always saw that the biggest problem for the clients was never price or accuracy or whatever. The main problem was they said, Oh, but I have to go to two user interface. I have to go to yours and, and, and check this document. And then I, when it's imported in my accounting software, then I have to go also there. And then we saw it like if the accounting software provider would provide a similar product to ours, they would use it even if it would be more expensive and lower in accuracy, right? So we saw that... <laughs> If, if you have like a user base and they're using your product, they're hooked on this process on, on, on using it and, yeah. and it's much simpler to use it, you know? So, so yeah, it, this can be translated in investing and in this user basis. So as you said, yeah, exactly, exactly that way. Yeah. Well, and I think also another great example of this is Square and what they do with their payments software. Yeah. So when, when they came about, People said, oh, you know, it's a it's a hardware company. They just kind of sell you this little dongle thing that you can use to take 
payments. But it's amazing to see what they're doing now with like Square Capital and them getting into not only, you know, other things to do with payments, but also loans and just, you know, like working capital requirements. And they've got all this data where they can provide these services at much more precise levels because they've got all this existing data from that large user base. It's just really exciting to see like what can happen when you've got these, like you said, large user bases that are leveraging their existing data from their customers to provide them with even more personalized options and different types of businesses than they originally were. Yeah, I mean, on, on Square, exactly. When, when Cash App is growing faster and faster, and then they can basically offer and say to their B2B business, to their business clients, oh, uh, we have like 30 million users and they could become your clients if you accept and use our dongle or, or whatever other product they can offer them, right? So um, it's, yeah, the, the user base effect can be, can be very, very um, strong. So, yeah. Let's kind of dive in now to this idea of inverting the question where, you know, there's things that you look for. What are some other potential major red flags when it comes to looking at early growth or tech startups, tech companies in general, that again, because of your background, because of your insight as a founder, as a startup uh, leader, that you might pass on an idea that others wouldn't see? Yeah. So one, one of them is, which I really don't like is even if a company is selling really good and, and everything looks great in terms of the numbers, et cetera, if I see that the, the tech solution in terms of technicals is outdated tech, this is, this is a problem. If I see that uh, uh, like for this product, there are competitors that, that have a better version, a much better version of, of this product and you don't have this tech to, to compete, I normally stay away from these companies. Mm. Um, this, this, for example, can be also, again, in, in our startup, for example, the way this problem was solved before with the data extraction was with templates. You know, uh, people like we, we have competitors that are template-based systems. So people template this document and then extract it. But, but now when you have AI and cloud computing, AI solutions are much better much better in accuracy and also flexibility mm. and basically even though the, the the large competitors have like more revenue streams and, and can still grow their tech is outdated so in these cases i normally wait for and see if like the management of this outdated tech is willing to do some m a or or whatever because yeah. if, if it's not then it is and it can be a really big problem down the road. So, one one question I have that I always wrestle with. So, just kind of as a as a as a personal background, I like yourself was you know an original you know intelligent investing, reading all those books, and I am forever thankful that I was born and raised and indoctrinated on that stuff because it 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 helps because at the end of the day cash flows eventually matter and it doesn't matter if you're losing money now cash flows do matter and if you on a unit economic basis can't make money it doesn't really matter how fast your user base is growing the cash flows matter and i feel like yeah. i you know say that because we're in 2021 and people need to hear that because i don't i don't think that investors today that have grown up in this bull market where everything goes up, no matter how much cash you burn, fully understand that. And 
with that said, some businesses that I invest in, some businesses that I look at, they are burning cash, but they have this really cool product, this really cool technology. And I know that even if they have a strong balance sheet, at some point, they may have to dilute shareholders, issue more stock, issue debt to continue their operations You know, before they hit that inflection point on the S-curve yeah. and start and start making profitability. At what point um, in your valuation work then do you decide like, okay, you know, this company might have to di- dilute a few more and I'm okay with X amount of dilution. Or is it just, you know, you believe in the product, you believe in the founders, you believe in the problem they're solving and it doesn't matter, you know, to the extent which they dilute because you think at the end of the day, they're going to generate a bunch of cash. Yeah, you have to look at it, at least I, I do, in how big can this company be? Like, well, let's say from, from a market, you can, you can talk about them or whatever. But uh, if, if I see that the, the market is big enough and that the growth, let's say, um, is, is higher than what I would expect from the dilution point of view, then mm-hmm. it, it, it normally gets my approval for, for going forward. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, in terms of, um, like these dilutions and also comps, you know, um, if a company is good and, um, innovative, it, you have to expect from it that they will reward their like share, like, uh, employees with stock options, whatever, because you want mm-hmm. to keep these these great employees at, at this company. And from, a from, from, from a view of, uh, let's say raising funds or money uh, this situation that we're in like let's say the, in the last few years has made that money is so cheap that you don't have to even worry or at least limit your worries that uh, that they would have to pay too much for like getting debt or 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 even equity right because the valuations are just so high um, right so, so in, in a way, this is good for the company, bad for investors, but um, yeah, it, it, it is, uh, I mean, there's no right answer, I guess. There's always some kind of trade-off that you have to make in, in terms of growth and further dilution or, or stuff like that. So, yeah. It's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned how big can this company be because I think I first realized, well... The idea first implanted into my brain when I was talking to Cliff Sosen about how he thinks about an investment. And if you zoom out, and I know this is going to sound overly simplistic, but it, it really resonated with me where if you zoom out and you look at the company and you look at it from a market cap enterprise value perspective, and it's early and you think, you know, look in five to 10 years, what could be the market cap or enterprise value of this company? Like what would an investor, private investor or company pay? for this business. And what I've found is when you zoom out to that level, you almost get a sense of clarity that you don't get when you're right up close to it digging into the financials, if that makes sense. Where like when you're yeah. when you're in when 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 you're in the financials, you can't really see the forest of the trees. But then when you spread out, like for instance, I was looking at a company that is developing this unbelievable technology. And you know, they're trading for $50 million market cap right now. So I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, in five to 10 years, if the company does what I think it can do, 
with a reasonable probability of success, will this company be worth $50 million in the future? And if the answer is no, and if the answer is 5X or 10X that, then you've got a really interesting idea. And sometimes what happens is we get caught up in the annual financial statements because we're trying to fit this into an Excel sheet where you forget the fact it's like, look, if you zoom out in five to 10 years, if this technology works and this, and this business and this solution solves the customer's problem, like how much is that going to be worth? And I just think you find so much more value in that. And then you can go back into the numbers and then see how that happens. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the numbers and, and your broader like understanding of the business have, have both have to come together. So, um, yeah. And, and I feel like you have, an, a, you have an advantage in that because you are a private owner and you are a founder of these, of these tech startups and you, you know, your, your company, your private company isn't listed on a, on a day-to-day basis. So you, so you have that experience of like, look, I think I know what my business is worth. I think I know what it can be worth the next five to 10 years. It doesn't really matter what someone would pay for it today. Yeah. And, and also, for example, like the second startup of mine is a SaaS company, right? So we right. have reoccurring revenue. And it, I, I still think that people don't really understand when they, when they go through the numbers in terms of revenue or even other numbers um, in, terms of, in terms of this reoccurring revenue. Because like I can have it right now, I have in the pipeline like clients that are, gonna, are, are starting like with small amounts of, of usage, right? It's not yeah. a subscription business. It, it's it's a SaaS business. But even if you have like s- small numbers of revenue from from a client, it's more important to know what's the potential of this client. Mm-hmm. And if you think that the company's product and team is is good enough for them to execute and bring this client to to what other clients are, right? That's the past right. track record. So right. it's more important what clients are in the pipeline because for example Hmm. our business we have like six months or even more like it's the sales process from clients testing the product and then to coming to use it is like six months and and for them to get to 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 uh to traffic or to usage that is what their potential is it's another six months right so yeah, it's it's really that's why I said at the start that the numbers can't tell you that mm-hmm. just looking at them. Right. So. Right. And it almost I do want to cross over something that may not be on on topic, but I want to do this right before we get into Pinterest, which, you know, obviously was the main topic of this of this conversation. But I was reading. Bill Gurley's blog, um, you know, for those that don't know, Bill Gurley, partner at Benchmark, one of the, I think, greatest venture capitalists of all time. Um, and I'm going through all of his old blog posts, one by one, writing summaries, and that's going to turn into a huge essay that I'm going to release at some point, hopefully soon. And he was talking about a book called Crossing the Chasm. And in it, he described how Amazon, when they first started AWS, they were selling to small businesses and rogue developers inside, you know, these larger organizations and how investors, if they were to look at that, might assume, oh, well, look at the customer adoption. Like, look who's using it. It's only these small guys. It's only the small players. It's only the rogue guys. There's no institutions um, adopting this technology. And what Gurley argues, and I guess what Crossing the Chasm 
uh, argues is that that's exactly who you want as your first customers. And so a question I have to you is when you look at an early customer base, are you focused on the type of customer and you know what what problems they're solving? And are you expecting like, okay, over the next five to 10 years, I think you're going to have large institutions adopting this? Or are you trying to look for these rogue adopters using this product because they're actually leading the trend where the by the time the large adopters get there, it's going to be an afterthought and that value creation is going to be gone. Yeah, so uh, just to understand, are you asking me for the specific of the startup or for the investing? Uh... Investing, I guess at this point, yeah. like 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 when you're looking at an investment and you see their early customers, are you thinking in your head like, okay, these are the first adopters, but I know that their customer base is going to look totally different in the next five to ten years. Yeah, if I can get the data on that, that's great. But the problem is that, like. A lot of also young SaaS uh, companies, even public ones, you know, they always say on this reference list, uh, I don't know, AVS, the big names always, I don't know, Salesforce, whatever, who are their clients, right? Or the big names, but um, you really don't know how deep is this relationship? Like, did they, I don't know, buy one seat uh, and are testing the product and the potential is for for 100 seats or 1000 seats? Or like, this is the main problem because they never, never really break down enough uh, the client base. If I get that, that's great because I want the client base to be younger companies mm-hmm. uh, that have also potential to grow high, right? Yeah. So, so, so it's much better than to have a corporation, even though a corporation sounds great in terms of uh, like uh, the brand and 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 like that, but you like you said it's more if they have clients that are growing fast it's better um than than big corporations and i think too part of it now that i'm now that i'm thinking about it is if you have these rogue developers adopting it they're making a voluntary choice to do it right because they're the ones iterating at the margin trying to find what works better just a little bit better than the product they have now where if you've got large institutions adopting this thing it might be more involuntary where they're doing it because now everybody else is doing it and so i think that from a signaling perspective it makes sense then if you've got these rogue adopters because they're the ones testing at the margin and if you're winning at the margin with these with these people for this new product that's better than what what they're currently using, I think that's extremely powerful. Yeah. And also, you know, as you said, rogue developers or these small companies, small, small users, are they're the ones that have to, that are attacking the big guys. So they're always yeah. on, on the hunt for a better product. And if yep. you see them using this product, that means that, that maybe just the, the big corporation didn't uh, like start using the product because they have some kind of old solution that but is really deeper integrated into their workflow or or whatever right so so yeah this this is uh, a very bullish signal yeah oh i appreciate i appreciate you let me pick your brain on that because it's something that i've been thinking about that's i think a really powerful model for 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 viewing customer cohorts and with that aside i think it's a great time to dive into pinterest so background on this for 
uh, you know, value, value hive listeners. Pinterest was one of those stocks that I hung up in my, oh, I'll probably get to this someday. Oh, I'm seeing other investors buy this. I think Stephen Wood was buying it and I really, really love the work Stephen Wood puts out um, from Greenwood investors. And I think he wrote about it in a letter and I was like, oh, kind of get it. But then I read their S1 and I was like, oh, they're a bike company and they're selling dreams and selling empowerment. <laughs> and that kind of rubbed me the wrong way because on one hand, it's like, I've got one foot in this like, you know, quote unquote, new world technology and, and these intangibles. But then on the other hand, I'm reading Terry Smith's book from Fun Smith and words that I'm trying to avoid in S1s. And I'm like, God, these things are competing. So I missed the boat on Pinterest, sadly, but uh, Rehard didn't. He started buying at $20, like I said at the beginning. So walk us through how you initially found this idea and what made your ears perk up and say, you know what, I should probably do more work on this. Sure. So um, because I focus on, on user-based companies, most of them are on my radar. So even when Pinterest uh, did the IPO, it, it was on my radar. But at, at that time, I didn't really focus so much on it. But then, a funny story, I guess. Um, me and my girlfriend were, were moving and uh, basically uh, moving to, to another house. And then we had to buy like all this furniture, stuff like that. And she was always like scrolling and, and, and saying, look, do you like this? Do you like this? Do you like this? And then I was, at first I was, yeah, it's all fine. Et and then I was, what are you looking at, right? Where are you getting this picture, these ideas? And she said, oh, it's Pinterest. And then I, and then I, I, I said, okay, so basically most of the furniture or ideas for furniture for for other stuff came from Pinterest and I was like okay so this is probably not a thing that happens only to me probably most other guys uh, you know because in the household even though we men like to be strong etc the women actually carry the the buying power of the household so mm -hmm. they make up what table or or or, or kitchen you buy um, in, in essence. And, and yeah, this is how it basically went on my radar. And, um, and then I basically did a deep, deep dive into, uh, primarily I was interested and in what really got me int uh, like intrigued was the user base and the demographic, the behavior, etc. So this part basically sold me the company uh, then I had to go through valuation and at that point I was even like shocked that it traded at such low multiples um, but as we were, we were probably discuss it later it's not sales multiples so uh, but we can get to that later so yeah. yeah yeah and actually now that I'm thinking about it it wasn't Stephen Wood that turned me on to Pinterest I think it was Scott Miller over it uh, Greenhaven. Stephen Wood was Peloton. Still same wonky S1, but just <laughs> different company. Uh, same, same, same first letter. And also Poshmark, uh, speaking of, speaking of companies that start with the letter, uh, P my girlfriend, like, or I guess my, my fiance now, um, she always on Pinterest and, uh, for those that listened last week, um, you know, I got engaged last week and this week I moved into a new house. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, my <laughs> life is just like, it's like going from zero to 100 right now. And talking about buying power in the home, I was sitting there in Target just like crying 
as <laughs> as as my fiance is dumping stuff into the into the bag. Um, not a target shareholder, by the way, but I should be to hedge out the expenses that I'm about to incur. Um, talk to us about uh, the three aspects of Pinterest users. So in your Substack, these three aspects are the user demographics, the user behavior, and the user growth. So if you, if you want, walk us through each of these and kind of how you analyze each cohort of this user data. Sure. So if we start with the demographic, um, what's interesting about Pinterest is that 71% of Pinterest users are women. Uh, even more interesting, like Pinterest captures uh, 83% of all U.S. women between the ages of 25 and uh, 54. So this is basically the, the phase in life where people buy their biggest expenses like house, uh, stuff for the children, cars, etc. Um, and also, like another interesting factor, so... 40% of U.S. dads use Pinterest for searching, shopping, planning, for fatherhood, etc. So again, you have also male users, but in, in the phase of their life where they're, they're maybe uh, looking for things that they really don't know. Uh, in, in like people know when, if, when they have a child, right, they, they normally... Uh, don't are, are not so price sensitive to stuff um you you want to buy whatever so the child is uh, happy quiet uh, doesn't scream etc um so so yeah th these two were the main let's say uh, are the main data points and then also um like as we were talking before like young women uh, are the ones that make 80 percent of buying decisions in the u.s household mm -hmm. um so this confirms that the, 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 the idea that women actually do carry um, the, the buying decisions. So this is from, let's say, user demographic. Um, and then we have the user behavior, which is almost more interesting than the demographic even. So 89% of US pinners or Pinterest users uh, use Pinterest for inspiration to their path of purchase. So um, you can see that it's the, the use of the platform is much different than like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, whatever. People yeah. actually go to Pinterest because they are looking to buy something or looking for ideas on what to buy. Um, so it's in a way... Um, more effective for advertisers, especially for advertisers that don't have um, like um, that have stuff like furniture, jewelry, clothes, etc. Basically, in my opinion, most of the things that are not like impulsive buying stuff. So maybe right. a, a gag gift or something is better that you use TikTok or Snapchat. But yeah. for 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 things like furniture or, or, or um, these more expensive items, Pinterest is actually uh, a more focused place to go on. Because I also, in, in my analysis on, on Substack, I also posted an interesting like uh, uh, table that shows that basically uh, finding 
and shopping for a product is like 48%. Uh, the data is 48% uh, at Pinterest, while at Snapchat it's four, Facebook is, it's 14, Instagram 10%. So you can see that Pinterest is really the dominant platform for shopping or for ideas on what to shop. Um, it, of course, it doesn't mean that it has the biggest user base from, from all these, but it still tells you that the users that are on Pinterest are mostly focused on, on that, right? So um, yeah. with that in mind, you can also check the behavior on, 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 on ads. So these users are not, they don't find these ads so um, annoying that then they could be on Instagram or on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Actually, people on Pinterest rate ads one and a four times more relevant and useful than on other platforms because yeah. you know if, if you if you check how it's used it makes sense right um i don't care if, if i'm looking for a uh, i don't know a brown chair to, to, uh, at some style and if it's an ad or if it's just another picture i don't care really as long as it, it fits what i was looking for it's fine for me right um so yeah, this, this is on the behavior side. And then of course the growth side. So um, like Pinterest before COVID was growing at around 26% um, year over year in terms of the user base. And after COVID it accelerated to 34% and now around 37%, which is high, especially if you take in regard that they have like 44 million uh, monthly active users. So uh, at growing for almost 40% at that scale tells you something um, and it's quite unique to be honest. Um, also in terms of social media, the only company yeah. that I think is growing that fast is TikTok. But like if we check the demographic, like TikTok, Snapchat, they have this younger user. Um, which is like, they always uh, explain this is great because this user will then grow up and eventually have the buying power, etc. But I remember when I was a teenager, uh, one day I liked something and the other day I changed my mind, right? It, it's not, yeah. uh, you're not really grown up yet and your flavor for things change quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you're not such a valuable user as you can't really monetize me right now besides from the gag things or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's not sure that I'm going to stay on this platform because maybe like I'll change my mind tomorrow. Right? Yeah. Um, well, it's, so yeah, it's, it, well, I was just, I was, I was, I was just going to cut in real quick about this idea of the value of a user on a, on a user, you know, on a, on a platform changing over time, because again, I'm going to go back you know, to Gurley for a second, he was talking in an interview, um, kind of like a, a bullish Uber case where 20, 30 years ago, you know, 30, 40 years ago, the social status symbol for a teenager transitioning in, transitioning into adulthood was a car, a new car, going out and getting that first car. And with Uber, what people are seeing now is that this social status of having a car, having a license, having that freedom isn't what it was because now even if you don't have a license, you can hop in an Uber and you can drive wherever you need to go. And it's interesting that you bring that up because it makes me wonder 
what brands, when they advertise, like what isn't going to be that social status symbol 10, 20, 30 years from now that it is today. And you can think about it too, is almost like the, the depreciation rate of a brand or the depreciation rate of a status symbol, which I think is so fascinating. I have no idea how you model that other than just randomly guessing, because then you're starting to think about trends and trying to predict trends, which I think is impossible, but it is just so fascinating to think about. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So then let's go from the user base to the financials and to the monetization plans. Um, because one of the things that I think is fascinating about your analysis of Pinterest is that um, you actually don't necessarily want them to focus on tremendous profitability or monetization as much as you want them to focus on user growth and really driving that lever. So maybe we can start there. Um, how do you know when the right time is for a company to switch from growth to monetization? And then I guess another way to say it, um, how do you know when a company's kind of exhausted that user growth and they should, where it's almost a function of, all right, you just need to at this point? Yeah. So to, to be clear first, uh, I'm not saying that companies should not monetize at all and right. at any given stage. That would be probably in the start phase where, where they would yeah. grow. But after they, like, for example, in, in Pinterest or even TikTok, um, you know, there in social media, especially, there's always, always was this factor where a product was cool, and then basically it started over monetizing, and people, in a way, said, "Okay, uh, it, it's not that cool anymore. Too many ads, or or whatever." Um, and if, for example, Pinterest is growing now like forty percent, um, and even accelerated this growth the last two two quarters. I want them to, to, to keep this trend and to focus on it more than they would focus on monetization. So mm -hmm. just, just to make it clear so that the management is more focused on how do we keep this growth or even accelerate it, then, okay, how can we now sell this user base uh, product or ads or whatever? Because, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, in, in, especially in social media, um, if you have a lot of people using a platform, it basically becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of you can't really um, like, yeah, you can try some other products, social media, but at the end you will come back because most of your friends or, or people that you know are there. Um, and for me, Pinterest hasn't achieved this phase yet. And I think they have a potential to, to be able to do it. So, so that uh, I, don't, I don't care if it's female or male users or whatever, but that the, 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 scale, the scale where it's at is that basically if you're redecorating your home or buying clothes or whatever, you go to Pinterest because you want to see what your friends bought or what, you, um, what people that you know bought, right? Um, so in, in terms of monetization, I would say, to, be, to precise a number, I would say if you're growing over 20%, I would prioritize monet, uh, growth, user growth compared to monetization. One thing I will push back on and you know, feel free to just 
let me know if I'm if I'm mis misreading this is I think Pinterest almost optimizes for the one-to-one rather than the one-to-many like traditional social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And just from my own fiance's personal experience, when she goes on Pinterest, I don't think she's as focused on what other people she follows are getting or are, are you know buying. I think what she's more interested in is having a more refined curation and the more data she feeds into Pinterest, the better the personalization curation becomes for her. And I wonder if that's just going to be a hurdle for Pinterest as they try to transform and maybe monetize as other common social networks have where they benefit from, you know, if I join Pinterest, it doesn't increase the value of Pinterest as a platform for my fiance because we may have different tastes. And so I guess my question is, do you think that they when it comes to monetization, do you think that they maybe should try to focus more on that personalization aspect and really hammering home knowing the customer and knowing who you are through that native advertising than trying to think about it as a standard social network? Yeah, I agree with you. You're, you're right. It, it's so far, or at least mostly, it's focused on this one-on-one. But um, I think with growing the user base and also, yeah, they should be fo- focusing more on this uh, socializing aspect so that, for example, um, your fiance and, and her friend, um, they share ideas or they, uh, they look to each other's boards of pins, mm-hmm. right? So that, for example, I did a redecoration of my house and this is all the stuff that I bought because it's like, I don't know, 50 things, right? But yeah. it could all be on on the board on on, on Pinterest, mm-hmm. and then basically people people that you know. So this is the difference, right? Uh, where I think Pinterest has to go, and this is that the people that you know need to 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 be easily more easily connected and and maybe even uh, some kind of personalized um, chats, um, hmm. stuff like that, groups, whatever. Yeah. Um, so this like Facebook is doing this with, with the group um, focus, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, but uh, Pinterest could be uh, like using this because people are using it for one-on-one. So if they see, oh, wait, um, this product was bought by my friend, like, I don't know, um, some, some product that maybe even I'm looking for, maybe I can ask him for a review if it's good or if it's not, whatever, right? So, um they the, the next step for them would be yes to 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 work on this group feature and uh, hmm. socializing uh, on the group yeah i i like that because i think i think there's a big difference between pinning something on your board and then having someone see that you've bought something right so it's one thing like i had a pinterest back in college and i love watches and I love looking at watches way more than I love spending money on watches. <laughs> and so, and I would, I would, I would have a watch board and I would find all these really cool watches. And if I had friends that had watches too, I think the social status effect, right? Because at the end of the day, we're all focused on this social status and this, this personalized branding. I think it would yeah. matter way more if you could say, you know, Hey, instead of someone like Brandon pinned this nice psycho watch, I, it could, it could say like, Hey, Brandon just bought this. And then you get now that almost, you yeah. know, I mean, you're not, 
you're not trying to feed on greed per se, but I do think that there's more of a stickiness there. And it makes me wonder, like in this far off world, um, what a Pinterest and Poshmark uh, acquisition, merger acquisition would look like where now users can buy and sell things based on their styles, based on their curated styles from other people on that same platform. Yeah. That if, you know, I just, I just think that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, social commerce in, in this respect is, is an opportunity that I see the biggest for Pinterest. But yep. even like, even if they don't achieve this, I still believe the company is valuable, really valuable because even this one-on-one -on -one experience, like yeah. it, at the end, it's better than an e-commerce experience, to be honest, because looking at catalogs and, and stuff like that, where we are even more focused on visualization and how it would look uh, will become less and less important. So, because mm -hmm. um, you, you really don't know what you want to buy. You just know an idea, approximation of what you want to buy, right? So, um, and, and, to, and because the world is so globalized and so many options are there, you, do, you, you don't know all the options and maybe yeah. Uh, it's too overwhelming for you, but um, if somebody can say, oh, look, this chair is similar to that one, it's just like $20 cheaper. And I mm -hmm. say, okay, maybe, why not? You know, so Pinterest could become really important for these small brands um, yeah. that like you, you buy something because it has a brand, but then they say, oh, you can buy similar things to that. It's almost identical, maybe. I don't know. Um, but it's much cheaper, but it's a, it's an unknown brand. And you say, okay, why not? I guess. Right. So, yeah. um, well, it's almost like what Amazon does with Amazon basics. They're doing the yeah, exact same yeah. thing. Got it. And another thing about that too, is just, just, just kind of going back to the, to the inherent value of Pinterest. You mentioned the ads and how just native friendly they are and the way Pinterest sets up their boards and, you know, you scroll through and look at different pins the ads are perfect and they don't obstruct the user's ability to enjoy the platform, which is huge. And it makes me wonder over time when you mentioned that catalog experience where now you can get all of these ideas from other businesses, whether it's like a Wayfair or an Overstock or Ikea, yeah. you have all of these people competing for basically online shelf space where it's like, okay, who's going to pay the most? to get the shelf space where it's right at your eye level, where, you know, like you see Tide, you see all these Procter & Gamble stuff right at the eye level because they pay the most for that slot. Exactly, and that's, yeah. And that's, and that's where I think Pinterest becomes really interesting. And you mentioned social commerce and you bring in two comparables that investors can study for this social commerce dynamic where maybe Pinterest will look like this, um, Pinduoduo and Shopee. So walk us through why those two are great comparables for what Pinterest could end up becoming. Yeah, so um, there are other, of course, examples. I, mm -hmm. I, I, I provided these two because I found them um, maybe to, to present a, a story. Because um, in, 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 the, in the East, it's, it's really popular, um, the social commerce experience. So for example, if we look at Pindidudo, or whatever it's called, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, like similar, where we can pull similar strings to, to Pinterest, 70% um, of their users are also female. Um, so 
and and the way what drives most of their sale is that they basically connect with WeChat, which is uh, let's say uh, um, social media super app, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's similar to let's say all the Facebook products together, um, and the users basically look what other people have bought they join like let's make a discount um, buying experience and let's get 50 people to buy toilet paper and then Mm -hmm. it's 20 percent cheaper or whatever right so they're really gamifying the the shopping experience and making it more like an experience right so because to be honest, when you're looking at classic e-commerce sites right now, it's it's really a boring experience. You're just, okay, this is, these are the filters. I'm looking for this, 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 this. And sometimes it's better, like all these um, like um, platforms offer you to set up some kind of parameters, what things you're interested in. Yeah. And then they provide you with like, oh, here is a great deal. Or your friends bought just this or somebody is looking for, 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 for other people to join this and then we can sell it, right? Uh, like um, this, um, it, it's, it's almost like you can imagine that now when you're looking on an e-commerce site, you're always, all, at least I am and, and a lot of people are looking for reviews. So if it's good or if it's not. Like, and these are reviews from strangers. Imagine if you get reviews from, from people that you actually know, it's, it's more, it's stronger. It gives you yeah. a bigger, bigger trust and okay, then it then it's probably fine. Right. Yep. Um, so yeah, in, 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 uh, in, in Asia and uh, in, in the East, this is really a, a thing that is blowing off. Like Pindidudo is, is growing crazy. Like to, to some extent, I, I don't really like them because people are also buying stuff because they're cheaper. Like an iPhone is cheaper than on an official site uh, hmm. of Apple site because they give these discounts for, for uh, people to buy. Right. So, but in a way they are bringing the users and it's a much easier experience to, to buy because everything is on this platform. And also it's much it's like a game, you know, it's much, it's a better experience because we're, we're trying to replicate, like also the retail stores are always trying to present some kind of story, right. Where, right. Um, and, and I think this is the next thing for e-commerce. They need to make this experience more personalized. So you're not just going to this e-commerce because it's cheaper. It's like, I don't know, $5 cheaper, but you're going there because, I don't know. You 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 like it the experience part as well, or or the payment part to be honest and and stuff like that. So, um, I think Pinterest has because of this user behavior a great chance here, because um, in my opinion it's much harder to make a social media company than it is to make an e-commerce company. Hmm. Yeah, and um, for those interested. Pinduoduo is up 307% since the beginning of January 2020. So that's not a bad return. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you do you do you think Pinterest strategy then, just to kind of pull at that thread, do you think their strategy is to offer basically the same type of furniture or appliances or knickknacks 
as these other companies and then just offer them at a discount, kind of like, I guess, how Carvana is trying to build their used car inventory, where it's like, hey, look, we know we're taking a loss on this car, but we just need to get inventory in to make it up in volume. Yeah, I don't think Pinterest is going right now there in, in okay. that field. But the way I see it more is that they focus on giving you maybe alternatives um, to what you were looking for or to the idea, the initial idea that you had so that you get, um, so that they basically uh, provide you, okay, okay, this, this is far better than my idea. Let's, let's go buy it, right? Yeah. Um, so, and, and also like in, in, the, in the world that we're going, AR is going to be really important. So for example, just, you could um, imagine you have a couch and with your camera on the phone or with, I don't know, AR glasses, whenever they come, you can put a hologram in your, in your room and you see how this couch would look like, right? Yeah. Um, this, this is um, where, where I think Pinterest is going and, and yeah, it's not the only one. Um, so... Yeah, and let's we can we can actually dive right into uh, AR because that was that was the next thing on the list there. Um, did you did you ever see there was a there's a tweet that went around? Home Home Depot has this function where you can basically put a product into your home through AR. Yeah, someone put up a Halloween like skeleton and it was life size, and they just took pictures of this skeleton AR in their home. It was so funny, and I don't I don't I don't know if you had a chance to to see that, but. Uh, when I think of AR, that's exactly what I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't see it. Yeah, but yeah, okay. Well, 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 I'll send it to you because it's absolutely hilarious. Um, do you think then Pinterest is gonna do something to what Snap wants to do, Snapchat, where you know augmented reality is gonna be the next playground with which to advertise or to do product placement? Um, and then how do you wrap your head around? how they're going to monetize that or is that just you know is that is that too much of a loaded question i guess in terms of i think that yeah all the all the social media companies or let's say social commerce companies like snapchat and even instagram or facebook all are going in in this direction in in the ar hologram space where you can uh, basically see how something looks like uh, where it's everything is more visual um, so they will clash here um, and to be honest um, I think Facebook will be the one that will provide the platform so mm -hmm. the the let's say AR glasses because they're the ones that are investing the deepest and um, for, especially from from you know Snapchat and Pinterest in terms of uh, like building their own platform they can try but they don't have enough like resources really to 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 to, to do this mm -hmm. but um yeah you, you can see pinterest re just recently launched like uh, like some kind of makeup where where you where you um where you take uh where the camera basically puts makeup on you so you you see how this would look like right so uh it's freaky. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, but I, I think the, the, the whole uh, industry is going to go in this uh, field, you know? Even 
like I imagine you can take a picture of somebody's t-shirt and because Pinterest now has also visual search. So you can upload an image and they provide you with similar images, right? Um, so everything is going to go in this visual, visual thing, e either by holograms or by pictures or whatever. Um, and, and yeah, their ambition probably is in, in the same as the other guys. In terms of monetization, um, I'm not sure that this product alone will be monetized. Mm -hmm. I just think it will provide a better e-commerce experience and uh, the monetization will come from the classic channels of, I don't know, revenue share ads, whatever. Um, but that's just my, my, my view. Let's talk about Pinterest uh, ARPU, which you know, for yeah. those that aren't familiar, it's uh, what annual revenue per user, average revenue per user. Gosh, I should average revenue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, average revenue per user. Um, you mentioned in the post that they've only begun executing on this ARPU strategy. Um, what do you mean by that? And I guess we can use the idea of automatic bidding as a way to um, intro this thought. Yeah. So. On average revenue per user, um, what's most interesting when you look at Pinterest is that looking at, at it, you see that they're monetizing the US base. So for example, in Q3 220, uh, they, they earned $3.8 uh, from an US user. But in terms of internationally, so users ex-US, it's like only 20 cents. So um, we, we can see that they only started with some kind of monetization in terms of uh, international base and the international base is becoming much, much bigger than the US base, even in terms mm -hmm. of growth and absolute terms. So, um, and, and another important thing to add is that the base is growing like 39%. So even if you monetize the users that you got back before, you now mm -hmm. have new users, right? And you need yeah. to get new data from them, et cetera, whatever. Um, so even, even management noted in their, in their, um, um, in their notes, in, in the earnings um, report that they're in the early stages um, and they're, they're just, starting to provide ads that are relevant because for example also in, in like my country um pinterest is almost unmonetized because i guess they don't have relationship with furniture sellers etc um right. and 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 companies like that right so um even though they have users um, they don't have the relationship with businesses and it, it will take some time. Also, Facebook didn't monetize it right from the, the gate. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah. Um, did you have like a, a second? Oh, it was automatic bidding, right? Yes. Um, yep. Automatic bidding. Sure. Yeah. So on, on the automatic bidding, they, they um, added this feature recently. It's also very important to know that even if you have a great... UX and, and the experience for the end clients, the users. I, I mean, the, let's, uh, 
we don't know who the end clients really are. You know? So yeah. in social media, you don't know if the user is actually the product because he doesn't pay or, or whatever. But um, the you have to build also the relationship with businesses and make like the experience for them to to purchase ads to 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 market on your platform as easier and 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 frictionless as possible and automatic bidding is something that that uh, can help here you know cuz you don't want to pay the same price for for a user at any given time or point you know it changes because of i don't know maybe there's some kind of holiday coming up or or or, or other factors so then for them to provide this automatic bidding and other features on the on the ads is a positive and it's actually the beginning um, as i see it for them so hmm. um you know because facebook for example has one of the most sophisticated um uh, experiences for for buying ads and and this kind of tools because they have been on the market for for a long time right so Right. This is the things that I was talking about when uh, focusing on growth or monetization because yeah. monetization, you have to build it out. It, it doesn't come from, from zero. Hmm. Got it. Let's move now to valuing this, this business, this monstrosity that is Pinterest. Um, let me check where they're trading right now. Uh, I think in your article, you had them at, I guess it was 18 times sales um at the at the at the time of writing and so maybe we can just kind of go with that um you know they're growing top line revenue really really quickly but as you mentioned earlier you don't really value a company like pinterest or i guess these social network companies on an ev to sales or a price to sales basis you focus on um the user base and the value per user and so first talk to us about why you focus on their on the user bases in these early growth phases as opposed to a price to sales or an EV to sales. Okay. So I think they're they're in my article as well, they're around 25 right now, uh price to sales. Okay. But um yeah with with, with companies with social media, especially the ones that are growing fast, I I like to focus on this metric market cap divided by monthly active users or user base, whatever. Um, because I think it shows a more important picture, you know, with, with social media, we're um, the analysts and everybody is just looking at their current revenue number where I see it as this is revenue from current ads, but mm -hmm. they could be selling much, much other stuff. Like when we talked about uh, how I, how I view user-based companies. For example, Pinterest has launched recently a corporation with, with Zoom where they will uh, provide online classes for cooking, et cetera, whatever. And I see it, okay, first it's probably gonna be free, but at some point there is a publisher of a class and uh, I don't know, users pay, I don't know how much dollars for it. And basically Pinterest can get a revenue share from that, right? So right. Um, I, I see it, as uh, it's it's much better to value it per user if you think that the platforms have similar chances of upselling or the user base is similar valued. Mm -hmm. And if, if we look at the numbers in, in my article, 
like um, the market cap per users um, was in Pinterest case around $102. With Snapchat, it was $216, right? Um, so basically, Snapchat is currently valued by, by the market um, two times more in terms of the user than, it, than Pinterest is. And quite frankly, I don't think this should be the case because I find users from Pinterest much more valuable than Snapchat users. Um, also Facebook, like um, it, it was $137, but I took into account all the, the users from all their platforms. So um, also Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, because some of them uh, are repeatable users, you know, they're yeah. on, on both platforms. So it's, yep. should be like 3.8, uh, the, the total, but, um, so yeah, you, we can see that also that, for example, Twitter, $116. So it is cheaper. Uh, so in, in, if you look at it that way, Pinterest is, is not even expensive right now compared to other peers. Mm -hmm. Um, we could value if the market as, as a whole is overvalued or whatever. But in terms of if you value it through peers, Pinterest is the, one of the cheapest in terms mm -hmm. of um, market cap per user. And yeah, especially if, if you're looking at it's growing 40% in user base. Um, right. You have to take into account this, this kind of uh, factor, right? So yeah. I, I don't think it should be trading at uh, a user base lower than the other guys. Yeah. And so you think, at least in the article, you think that Pinterest should trade within a range, I guess, between Facebook and Snap. So, you know, if we take the average of those, that's what, $177 per user. Um, and then I guess if you look out over the next five years, how do you see that, um, you know, dollar amount or that value per user changing? How high can that go? Yeah. Um, so in terms of um, in, in the future, it will mostly depend on how the platform is used. Um, so if if the if the users keep using it as it is, or if they build even more traction with, as we talked about, this group feature um, sharing experience. But um, as long as they're growing in user base, look, who am I to judge if if this um, uh, product or or, or uh, uh, social media is good or not. If the users are growing and coming, then obviously, to for some users, it, it is it is good, right? So yeah. Um, even if you don't understand it, because Pinterest is it's not that straightforward, like other social media companies, but the the numbers speak for themselves, and. Um, also, where I think this could stop, like in terms of user growth, honestly, I don't have an idea. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it, will, it probably won't be as big as Facebook um, because I guess it is more of, more of a female product or at least has some kind of features more related mm -hmm. to that. Um, but in terms of revenue per user, I actually think it could be even bigger um, the value of a user than the other guys because we explained um, why these users are coming. So um, you could almost say that on, on most cases you can sell something to, to a user on Pinterest, which is really crazy even to say it, right? But um, yeah, 
for advertisers, for businesses, this is like the go-to, you know? Yeah. And it was almost, um, you know, I think, I think the idea of cracking that male demographic or, you know, trying to divest your revenues just from, you know, the female, the female demographic is something that Lululemon struggled with too. Um, you know, they were always just like a women's company that made yoga pants and, you know, they've transitioned yeah. into having exceptional men's clothing. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? It's, it's, you go back to, uh, one of the co-founders at, at macro ops, um, AK, he would always call the, uh, you know, this like female demographic portfolio, the Becky index. And it was like, it was like okay. Pinterest, Lululemon, Starbucks. And it's like, if you follow the women, the younger women demographic, and you see what they're purchasing and you just follow their coattails, that portfolio is incredible. <laughs> and like the returns you can get, if you just follow what the women purchase is, uh, is pretty awesome, actually. Interesting. Yeah. That, that sounds, that sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk about risks now with this thesis. So let's say you and I come back on the show in three to five years and it didn't work out. Why do you think your thesis would have fallen apart and where, where do you think you can be wrong when you, when you look at it over the next three to five years? Yeah. So the biggest risk factor would be if I saw user base, um, starting to, to, to like, if they start to, to lose users, that would be a big problem. Um, cause it would speak that the product, that, that something is wrong with the product, right? I expect the growth to stabilize a bit. So, uh, during COVID it was accelerated because everybody was staying at home. So I, I still expect it to be lower, but I do expect it to be over 20%. So this would be like, uh, uh, an important number for me. And then another risk, I guess, would be also if, um, like Facebook, as I said before, will probably be the owner of the AR platform. So similar to what Apple is right now with the smartphone or Samsung or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and there could be a risk, uh, um, related to this relationship because if you if you if you saw the latest quarter of Facebook they're like really targeting Apple um, and, and explaining why the iOS privacy change could affect them right um, right this, this is an important relationship to understand because uh, if you want to be a fully um, strong user-based company, it almost feels like with the Facebook case, you also have to own the hardware in a way. Um, right. Because like same with the smartphone, at the end, Apple controls the iStore. So they control the apps. They control where the, where the customers on board. Um, so be also a risk factor for Pinterest going forward. Um, with Facebook owning the platform and being their competitor on the, on the social media side. Got it. Got it. Now, this was an awesome conversation. I mean, we, we flew by what an hour and a half and I learned so much about how you think about businesses and how you think about Pinterest and kind of how you, how you walked us through this, this, this deep dive. 
to wrap up this conversation, I do want to know where are, where are the corners of the market? What kind of companies are you looking at now that you think might have the Pinterest level conviction, at least in your own belief, or the same excitement about about Pinterest? Um, where where are you finding these companies? And maybe you can give us some hints about about where you're looking at next. Yeah, well, um, it's 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 really hard currently in the in this environment because everything that has some kind of potential is just skyrocketing. That thirty um, times sales. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, thirty times sales, even maybe it, it, it's okay. But if you see one hundred times sales or stuff like that, I mean, I like to invest in growth companies, but still, the valuation has to work in in some regard for me. Yeah. Uh, to be able to pull the trigger. So I do have a list of companies that are, are, are active on my watch list. Um, and I'm basically waiting for them to come down in, in valuation. Um, these are also companies that have user base, like my, uh, my followers probably know because I, I, I post them up. It's, for example, one of them is Zoom, uh, for sure. I'm waiting mm-hmm. for the dust to settle because... Um, I think the company has built a good user base and could be very valuable in the future. Mm. But uh, I think that in the short term, the price could still get under pressure because it's the COVID situation starting to to go past us, yeah. uh, or at least let's hope it will. Um, mm. Another one is Airbnb, where it's similar, okay. but the valuation just doesn't work for me. Uh, right now, I do have price targets, but you know, the valuation can change if the company suddenly uh, ha- has like um, uh, a big quarter and, and, mm-hmm. and also the numbers change. Um, then is also, I just recently added on this pullback on Friday and started an initial position in Square. Uh, nice. The cash app ecosystem is really big. Uh, and I see it growing fast. Um, and this could be like the fintech space has a lot of competitors and a lot of companies um, um, in it, but it could be one of the most interesting spaces when we see a clear industry leader. Uh, don't know who it will be like, uh, full, full disclosure, I also own Sophie. So the, for, for, the, for the spec, Chamat uh, spec, I also own Sophie. Okay. Um, but, but yeah, so th- this are maybe the companies on my watch list, but then there's also some companies that, uh, that I find interesting and they're maybe not even us companies. Um, so I, for example, blue prison, I really like the, yeah, that's the actually how we, yeah, that's actually how <laughs> we first met. I, I've, I was going through on Twitter looking to see who was interested in them. And I saw that you had a position. I was like, oh, let me reach out to him. And so that was actually our first contact. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like the robotic process automation uh, space, uh, mostly also because I know I have the domain knowledge because uh, a lot of our users in our startup are RPA developers. Hmm. Um, so I also get a sense what kind of solutions they're looking for or, or what, what they use. And um yeah, I like the RPA space. So Blue Prism is currently a public company and the valuation seems very, very cheap. 
Uh, also, UiPath is about to go on the, I, uh, the IPO, so that will be a name I will follow closely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I, I mean, there, there are some companies, but in general, it's the current market environment is really hard. And uh, a lot of the time, I just add to my um, current companies that I find at, on attractive levels. Like, for example, yep. recently added to Facebook, to Pinterest. Um, so sometimes you just have to add to your winners and, and uh, the stocks that you know and, and not look for a new company just for the sake of it being new, right? Yeah, man, that's 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 something I struggle with a lot. Um, no matter no matter how many times I read Joe Frankenfeld at Saga Partners about how sometimes the best ideas are the ones you already own, it's I I love the idea of finding new companies, and sometimes that yeah. handicaps me into not allocating more to the best ideas that are already in my book because um, that's way more boring, honestly, and it doesn't stimulate you the way that researching a new company that you just found does. So. Yeah. Hopefully I get hopefully I get better at that. Um <laughs> so now let's wrap up with the couple questions that I ask every every guest here. Uh the first one is where can people go to find out more about you? I know that you're prolific on Twitter. Um so if you want to give the you know your Twitter handle and where else people can find you. Yeah, sure. So uh, one place is Twitter. So uh Richard Yards is, is the handle. Um and then also I have a Substack um, newsletter. It's Uncover Alpha. Uh, it's called Uncover Alpha. So there I write about my analysis, about my, I update my position, portfolios, and in general about investing. So I guess uh, there, th- those are the places that people can find me. Got it. All right. And the last question I ask every guest, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Oof. Oh, all right. This question is not easy. Um, <laughs> hmm. Well, maybe a, a not non-conventional answer. I don't know if you know him, but um, he's called Andy from Headspace, if you know the company. So it's a meditation app. Yep. I know or, the company. Uh, I don't know Andy. Yeah, he's the guy that basically is the founder and and also he talks about this meditation. And this is why, because I really want to know how he he, um, keeps keeps things so under control and and, and in his head. I find it very interesting. Like meditation is is a thing I'm doing like for the last year and I found Mm -hmm. great benefits of it. And... um, if you're super like working all the time, etc., you really need to to know this stuff. So uh, yep. I guess he would be a guy I would I would love to to meet. But honestly, I wouldn't go to dinner. I hate okay. I hate when when people go to dinner and and you discuss some kind of hard topic because I I like to focus on enjoying the food. Because when right. I'm on a dinner <laughs> and selling something or, or listening or whatever, I just yeah. find out that. I just threw the food in my mouth and then I'm just sick of it. So yeah. um, I guess more coffee or drink. Yeah. Uh, the second guy would be maybe, I guess, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, yeah. I, you know what's I, shocking is no one said that on the podcast. And I've done like 60 of these and nobody said Mark Zuckerberg. 
Yeah, I know he's, I don't know, people don't like him, whatever. Uh, I just find him very interesting and would want to know what's in his head. Um, because, <laughs> look, the guy for his age and what, what, has, what, what he has done is, I think, amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, also f- for looking at the future, you know, everybody's looking for, he's talking about Elon Musk, Bezos or whatever, but I, I also think Zuckerberg um, would do big things and has done big things already. So, yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's actually fascinating that you mentioned that like Zuckerberg's almost gone by the wayside, but yet his company still generates massive profits and consistent revenue growth and trading for a pretty decent multiple right now. So um, it'll be, it'll, it's, it's always interesting to see what Zuckerberg does with all the cash that, that, that he generates. And uh, I agree that would, that would be really interesting. I wonder what he would be like in person um, when he's not, you know, um, you know, debating in front of Senate hearings about privacy issues. (laughs) So I think he's, I think he's probably a different guy, but um, Rahard, thanks so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. We will definitely do this again with another one of your really cool, interesting ideas. Um, For those that haven't already, make sure you subscribe to his Substack and give him a follow on Twitter. He is very approachable and I think his DMs are open. I think that's how I found him anyways. So if you, you know, if you want to run by an idea with him, just, shoot him a shoot him a dm he's 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 on twitter and he's a great guy so rahard thanks so much for coming on the show had a great time thank you brandon